0: You may remember Peggy English from a book she wrote years ago. It was entitled Real Women Know Football. Well, just in time for the Super Bowl, she's back with more tales of life as the wife of football legend Wayne English in her book, Traveling with the Coach.
1: Well, I met my husband in about three weeks. He said, you know why I'm going to marry you? No, because you're so big and we'll have big sons. And when the first one was born, that was his first job as a head coach and he pulls up in the bus and gets off the bus and the team's hollering hurry coach hurry he runs up what is it a boy oh okay and he (laughs) i mean and our boys are six foot five three have played pro ball one's a lawyer and one's a doctor and They've all been major college football scholarships, but when they were three years old, he put up a net and he said, every time you throw a dollar of football into the net, it's a dollar towards your scholarship. (laughs) That's great. I have been married to him 60 some years, and we have lived all over the world. Eight countries, three pro teams, eight colleges, And my first book was inspired. It was called Real Women No Football because women would get mad at me because I would go and sit with the men because it's more fun after the game's over to hear them talk. And some lady said, well, why don't you teach me? So that's how I wrote the first book. Now, this book, I started writing down all the silly things we've done and uh, turned it into a book. Give
0: us a little background on your husband, Wally English, you know, for people who may not know.
1: He's 89 years old, but he coached from the Dolphins. He has a Super Bowl ring. He coached for the Saints and the Lions, eight colleges. And then uh, in NFL Europe, he won three championships. He won the French championship, the Italian championship, and the English championship.
0: That's amazing. Good for you.
1: Yeah, he's coached nine quarterbacks that made it into the NFL. And when he was with the Dolphins, Shula said to him, I want you to get me the best quarterback because he's an offensive coordinator. And that year there were four, John Elway, Danny Marino, and I can't tell you the other four. There were four really top quarterbacks. And Wally had gone in the meeting. He said, I want Danny Marino. And the uh, scout said, oh, no, he had a terrible senior year. He's been on drugs, blah, blah, blah. And Wally said, I'm telling you, we want Danny Marino. So he Got Danny Marino. Then the same thing happened with Mark Duper. And Shula said, you better be right. Well, the first day of practice, both of them did terrible. And he came home that night and said to me, we may not have a job tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) But proof is in the pudding.
0: So he just had this ability to spot real talent.
1: Yes, he really did. When he worked for the New Orleans Saints, that's all he did. He went out and got players people think coaches are big deals and and uh when we first started coaching he made three thousand three hundred dollars well this 1960 we thought we had all the money in the world and he like uh, billy belichick is he taught billy football and then like four or five of the assistant coaches and the, and there's like three of his assistant coaches all went on to be head coaches and they're making millions. That's how Wally said you were in it at the wrong time. <laughs> so what kind of experiences do you share in your book? My favorite story of all is Wally was coaching and I it might have been at BYU I don't know and he was going to California for a seminar that he was going to speak on and he said bring the boys so I said okay so I started driving and we got to Winnemucca Nevada and it was late and I Thought, oh my lord, I, you know, we're we better stop for the night. And we went in, and they said, I'm sorry, we have one room left, and only has one bed in I said, I don't care. The boys, you know, we'll sleep anywhere. Now these are teenagers, sixteen, seventeen, oh, uh, and a couple of uh, younger ones. And so they all went out and got food and blah blah blah, and came back. And the next morning, we all got up and got in the car and started for. California and it came on the ra- or the radio Hotel Winnemucca closed down. It was a house of ill repute. Oh, no. <laughs> and I had my boys running around. You had no idea? <laughs> no idea. It was it was the only hotel. And then when we went to Italy to Palermo, Sicily, uh, while he coached for the Dolphins and Super Bowl, they always had a lot of people in and he met a lot of the European people back then. This was 1998. They were just starting football over there. Mm-hmm. And one of the men said, would you ever consider coming to Europe to coach? And he said, well, sure. So we got a call and the man said, is a the coach of the dare? And I said, <laughs> I knew it wasn't, you know. So I handed the phone to Wally and he said, well, sure, I'd love to do that. And at that time, we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, and there was an Itali- two Italians who had a fabulous restaurant, and they happened to be from Palermo, Sicily. So we went down and talked to them, and they took us to the, to, uh, to the professor at who taught the Italian language, and they wrote up the contract. And so Wally and my son Danny s- flew to um, Sicily, Palermo, and they met him at the plane the italian people and took them right to practice and danny said they got there the field was a dirt field with pebbles and uh <laughs> they were so excited to have football and then when i took the rest of the boys we got on the plane well first of all we flew to rome and got off and there were all these men with machine guns well you know in the united states we didn't have anything like that right. so we get on Alitalia to go to Palermo and all of these Italian people with their chickens and their food, and they couldn't have been nicer. Let us feed you. Can we do you want food? (laughs) The whole entire time we were there and we didn't know money was they, when we went there, they said, "Um, we'll pay you so much and give you a car to drive around. So, and a place to live. And so we did and uh but no food for money and when you have that many people and it, it costs a lot of money so right. i had to call my dad and say will you send me some money and he sent me a check for 500 and i went into the bank and you had to go through armed guards mm-hmm. and then i gave them the check and they looked at it my father was a judge and they they said well You'll have to come back tomorrow to get your money. And I said, Oh, okay. And I walked out and left the check. Never gave it a thought. And Wally said, Well, you mean you gave him the check and you didn't get any money? But the next day I went back and I got five hundred dollars worth of lira. Well, you'd have thought I was a millionaire. I had to carry it out in a bag. Oh, geez. Yeah, but we've had we truly have had a lot of fun, fun times when Wally coached at BYU. It's all, you know, a Mormon community. Right. And so if he wanted to get a beer, we had to go out of the community. Because if you said you work for BYU, you, you didn't do that. And right. then the doctor of the team would come to our house, and he'd have his drink and his Coke and smoke, and <laughs> then he'd leave. <laughs> the first half of the book is all about living in Europe. We coach Spain, Italy, Hungary, Serbia. We loved it. I love that better than coaching in the United States because they were so thrilled to have somebody with Wally's knowledge. But I mean, literally, Wally worked 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week coaching. And over there, you'd work three days and then you'd have three days off and play the game on Sunday. And so we'd have a car and we got to drive you know all over the whole all of europe then the second part of the book is the college and the proteins it's funny i mean the silly things that we did i can remember when wally took the job with don shula at miami and mrs shula called, and she couldn't have been nicer oh you know florida's great but you're gonna get tired of it and you'll have company and and she was right and i had a, a baby at that time and wally The baby was born and Wally left to go to the Dolphins, but uh, I was in the hotel. He had me come down to see about a house, so I took the baby and we flew down and uh, I was in my room. And a knock came at the door, and there was this woman standing there with a moo moo and a big basket. I thought it was the maid, and I said, oh, we, you'll give me five minutes, I'll I'll get out of here." And she said, "I am Dorothy Shula." I don't think she ever forgave <laughs> me for that. Oh, what did you know? know. <laughs> Coaching is very. People have no idea what a football coach. My favorite thing when we coach for the Detroit Lions, Raymond Berry, who's a very famous football player, he and Wally became very good friends. And he'd pick Wally up at 6 in the morning and they'd get home maybe at 12 at night. But he would say when the men went in the hotel room, uh, went in the hotel, of course, all the women are waiting. And he'd tell the team, eyes to the sky. <laughs> and one time one time um, one of the coaches who had coached Joe Namath said that he used to do bed check and he was going around and there was Joe down in the bar with three or four women and he went to check his room and he said there was a woman waiting for him in his room oh jeez! <laughs> I mean truthfully like poor Don Shula I would feel so sorry we'd go out to dinner and he'd take the staff and women would come up. Can I have a kiss? Could I have my picture with you? Oh, and, boy. You know. I, I actually have been in the hotel room with my husband. And the phone rang and said, is Coach English there? And I said, well, who's calling, please? And she said, well, I'm down in the barn. I thought he might want to meet me. And I said, well, this is his wife. I'll ask. <laughs> and she hung up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, listen, uh, if you had that much success with your first book and it was self-published i don't see why you can't have similar success with this one really
1: yeah i did a telephone interviews three and four times every week and got to be on the view and good morning america and and then here in louisville i got to be on those shows you know whatever it takes i would
0: think if you reached out to your local tv local radio stations that they're they're going to pick up on this because i'm i'm sure they know who you are
1: well i doubt that
0: (laughs) No, i'm sure the local paper knows who your husband is and why wouldn't they want to do an article on you well he's
1: 89 and you know he's been out of coaching probably 20 years and uh, he was a great coach he won every place he ever coached in fact when we were at pittsburgh we beat Penn State two years in a row, and Joe Paterna called him to come for an interview. And the head coach of Pittsburgh said, "If you go, you better get the job." So Wally didn't go. <laughs> but uh, no, he's he's been ex- he's won every place he's ever coached except the Detroit. I mean, when I say win, I'm talking major wins uh pro bowls and super bowls and all that but he did they didn't do that well at detroit and they didn't do that well at the university of kentucky but other than that they have i can't tell you how many bowl games bowl rings bowl watches and it's yeah i wouldn't trade it for all the money in the world we've moved 50 times and you know i don't care it's fun
0: Well, listen, I wish you the best of luck. And I hope I talk to you again soon, Peggy. All right. Thank you. The title of Alex Russo's book speaks volumes. I heard you speak to me. It's about a woman in the medical profession who finds herself in a sociopathic relationship, a situation more than one author on this show has explored because it's more common than some might think.
2: I think every woman probably in their life has been in a sociopathic narcissistic relationship they just might not know it what i wrote um in the back of my book because they always ask you in the back of your book to say something about the author and i think it kind of hits home for many years i heard all my girlfriends or friends men and women complain about searching for love or for a partner we may be over drinks or cocktails at parties at tears or at weddings, you know, like when they throw the bouquet, Oh, I don't want to be the one that catches that bouquet. I've already had a failed marriage, one or two or whatever. And, um, they still keep asking the same question. Am I going to meet the right one? Or I just had a horrible relationship. or I just ended a horrible relationship. And, you know, when am I ever going to find the right person? I can't believe I'm going through this again. And, um, for me, I think it's always like, oh, why don't you take a step back and you know relive that relationship and who did you turn to for help? And I think the message is always, you need a higher power. You need to take a step back and listen to God, but not everybody believes in God. And that was the part that I wanted to get across, especially when my publicist wanted to put out my release There was a lot of god a lot of lord and i'm like well not everybody believes in god um not everybody believes in the lord so some people believe in a higher power so whatever it is you believe in take a step back and trust that there's somebody else there to help guide you through this and that's kind of my message
0: you know some people might call it intuition
2: right yeah when
0: you have a feeling that you need to do something, that that feeling is real, you're not making it up in your head. Because a lot of times we ask ourselves, am I just making this up? Am I just trying to convince myself? Or is there really a message coming through here?
2: You know, the the sixth sense, you know, you've heard of the sixth sense. I have a sixth sense. I'm my, one of my former husbands said to me, you have seven. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
2: and, And, you know, because I, In medicine, he used to say, sometimes you don't always know the right thing to do, but you always know not to do the wrong thing. (laughs) Well, good Um, for you. Yeah, yeah. So, But I think my book is, you know, it's a love story. Everybody wants to read a love story, right? Everybody wants to see a woman find her love. Um, I made it short because not everybody has a lot of time in this busy world today to read a uh, a long book um one of my friends that recently read it she was it was great she's like i read it on the way to hawaii she goes i could get through that book on the way to hawaii and i (laughs) loved it and she goes and i didn't have to like get into you know five chapters to like okay what is this story about right she goes it, like, right away grabbed me and embraced me, and I loved it. And she goes, it was just, it was captivating. It was a story about a woman that fell passionately in love with a handsome doctor, and, it, and he captured her heart, but he took her on a roller coaster of a ride um, while she was studying in the medical field, and she fell deeply in love with him. But then, boy, did he challenge her life and changed her life. Not always in a good way. And she had a really hard time. She struggled a lot. And the only person that she could really turn to was God. And he is the one that brought her through this. And that's why it's called, I Heard You Speak to Me.
0: Give me an example of how he challenged her.
2: He he lied a lot about things, but he was so charming and convincing that she believed him. You know, For instance, one of the times um, he told her that um, he happened to see a credit card on the counter that she had just gotten, and this is when she was in medical school, and he said, you know, it would be really nice if you put my name on that credit card, because just in case I need it for emergencies, and she said, well, that's what it's for, it's for emergencies, But she loved him so much she trusted him, so she put his name on the account. And it was for $25,000. And uh, this is when she was in medical school. She had a daughter that was in high school. And she also, she lived um, separately from her daughter because she was going to medical school, but she would go home on the weekends to see her daughter. And her daughter was a junior in high school and wanted to have a bus for their prom. And they thought it was a really good idea to have a bus that would take them to and from the prom. And then if by chance they happen to drink a little bit of alcohol, they would be safe on the bus. And she says, Mom, this will be a really good way. We can make some money and we'll be safe. And so the mom thought about it and says, well, you know what? Okay, let's do it. And she was, but I need your credit card to put a deposit on the bus. So she gave her the credit card number and said, okay, this is fine. So the next day, daughter calls her frantic, saying, Mom, your credit card didn't go through. Oh. And she's like, What? I, I've never even used it. It's 25000 dollars of credit. I don't understand. So huh. she calls the bank. She goes, Oh, she's like, um, it's all been used. She's like, what do you mean it's all been used? She says, Yes, there's um man came in and got uses it all. He took cash. (laughs) Oh boy. So that was one example of how she trusted him and he, you know, when he got home that night, she questioned him and he said, Well, he needed it for a business adventure. He promised he would pay it back. Oh God. No, that was just one of many examples of things that he did to her. But she trusted him. She still continued to trust him because she loved him. He was handsome charming brilliant brilliant because he and he helped her a lot when she was in medical school so that was the other thing that she was drawn to his mind he was brilliant
0: right it's so sad that i i can't tell you how many women i've known throughout my life who were so desperate for love who you know gave men money gave them their stocks turned over you know, trust funds and, you know, because the guy said he was going to invest it and, you know, ended up losing her life savings. This happened to one friend. I mean, it's so sad that we need to be loved so badly because, you know, we don't love ourselves.
2: Right, right. Well, you know, she, she trusted him and she, you know, what could she do after that? She'd lost the 25000 Luckily, you know, um, her daughter ended up getting the bus because her her mom gave her the money to pay for the bus. So the grandmother. So you know, oh it all worked out. But yeah, she was yeah. embarrassed. So it's so. this
0: this kind of shenanigans that goes on in the book, and at the end, we find out whether she comes to her
2: senses or not. Right. Well, she ends up marrying him, unfortunately.
0: Oh boy! But the book doesn't end there, right?
2: No. Oh no. No. Oh no. They. They. They go into business together. She ends up being with him for 15 years. Wow. That's a long time. It's a long time because she really did love him. But, you know, what what are sociopaths? What is their makeup? They're good looking. They're charming. They're brilliant. They draw you in. And then when they're done with you, they're done. There's no remorse at all.
0: Well, you got a good message here.
2: If a woman is in a sociopathic relationship or a narcissistic relationship, that maybe she'll read my book and say, hey, I think that might be me. I need to get out of this relationship. That's one thing. The second thing is, because the title of the book is I Heard You Speak to Me, it's about God, um, listening to God, or a higher power, or whatever you believe in that you'll take time to take a step back and listen. And those are the two things that I hope that people will get out of the book. And then the other thing is, you know, encourage people that if you have thought about writing a book, do it. It's not as hard as you think, or at least I didn't think it was, just do it. If you're passionate about something, you wanna get a message across, go ahead and do it. It can be very cathartic also. It just sometimes the words just start flowing out before you know it. Before I started, before I knew it, I had 50 pages written.
0: Well, I hope there's more where this came from. And thanks so much for talking to me.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Alice.
0: Shout out to Becca Huntsberger, who fights with insurance companies every day to make sure patients get the coverage they need for surgery. Thank you. And you are here to talk not about that, but your book entitled The Tattered Veil. When do you find time to write? Between patients. Between patients you're writing?
3: Between, I am. I write. All the time. I could be driving down the road, and I something strikes, and I say, hey, Siri, make a note. And if somebody was to pull me over and say, I have to look for your phone, I would be in jail. There are so many things. I haven't had to dispose of a body at sea where it won't come back. <laughs> Why do you know yeah. that? <laughs> um, because it's going to be in one of my next books. I have 15 books in the works right this minute. So,
0: How yeah. long have you been writing? 20 years. 20 years, 15 books.
3: This is your first one published. Actually, this is the second time this first book has been published. It has been a long journey. Um, I wrote the book. It's based on true events. Two very close people to me begged me to write their story and fictionalize it. So I put myself in the book to make it authentic because I have to know my characters, so I put myself in the book as one of the characters, or part of one of the characters, and I, yeah, it's been, it has been an extremely harrowing journey, if you will. So why, what happened
0: the first time you tried to get it published?
3: Well, it was published, um, but my publishing company, um, they did me dirty, he Kept all my royalties, didn't even give me a copy of my own book, and um, disappeared. Oh, Closed no. Closed up shop and disappeared. Yeah. So. So So you tried Paige. I did. I. And whenever I say I tried Paige, you know, I had talked to the guy that I reached out to the first time. And I talked to him. And then a year later, he reached out and he said, you know, I'm just touching base. And I said, yeah, well. I'm almost done and I had been revamping the book and redoing it because the first guy didn't even edit. He put a disclaimer on it says, caution this unedited it's It's You know, we didn't want to damage the integrity of the book, Uh, which was just BS. Yeah. yeah, Just because he was lazy. So um, I, I really wanted to take it a different way and it's not so crude um, the girl's name is Sophia, and she's a young girl who experiences trauma early in life by losing her mother. Then her dad remarries, and it's a family full of monsters, predatory monsters. There's an uncle, a brother, and a cousin who all take advantage of her and molest her and violate her in unspeakable ways. And she just—it's—it's it's just a story about her struggles and her lifelong abuse and how she has to, she realizes that she has to end those patterns before she succumbs to depression and, you know, before it's too late. So it's just kind of a bumbling, stumbling way through her her life and how she depends on her uh, womanly wiles, I guess, to get through life and stay safe. But whenever she realizes that a lot of it is men actually using her for sex, that she realized, well, maybe I should just, maybe I should straighten up. Maybe I should just, you know, stop messing with men. And she ends up meeting the love of her life and life goes on. And this is based on a true story. Based on, yes, it's the culmination of three different lives. So it's, I mean, it's not really just one straight path. It's kind of floats around. I blended them into one character so that it would be it wouldn't be too confusing because it's almost as though she has a split personality. She goes through all of this abuse and it's a wonder she's sane, which, you know, a lot of people would kind of say that what she does throughout the book is not sane. She's, you know, gets involved very quickly with relationships and men and and things. And um, it's all based on her history of being abused. She just thinks that that's how life is. That's how, she, how you get through.
0: Does she ever get help? No, not really.
3: She just leans on herself a lot.
0: What's your message in this book? What do, what do you want us to learn?
3: Um, if you rely on yourself, you can get through anything pretty much. At least that's, that's what, I, what I saw. Okay, it, my two cousins were the ones that I based this on because they asked me, they begged me to write their story. And then one of them passed and that's what I envisioned for them.
0: So all of this abuse is going on. She never
3: tells anybody. She keeps it to herself. She tells her parents and they tell her that um, the very first time that it happened, she tells her parents and they tell her that she's just making it up. So she just, if she can't trust her parents, she just doesn't tell anybody. Who, who abused her the first time? How old was she? Um, 13, I think it was. And it was an uncle. For the first one okay and her parents don't believe her no because they're newlyweds and she they think that she's just trying to keep uh, stop cause trouble okay so what happens does what, what happens
0: to this person
3: um well she just goes on with life she moves out early from home and immediately gets into a violent relationship um with a husband that cheats And so she cheats and it's back and forth cheating. I'll cheat on you. You cheat on me. And she just figures that this is how life is played. And she learns very quickly to adapt. She jumps in with both feet um, into relationships without really taking the time to get to know people.
0: Okay. Now, are, are you, you say you've got 15 books that you, you want to publish. Are they all based around this story? Or does oh gosh, this story, no. do you come to, do we come to a conclusion here? Does she, is she able to survive somehow?
3: Yeah, she does survive. She ends up getting married um, to a man that she um, believes is her, the love of her life, and they live happily ever after is basically, basically okay. the end of that book. So when did you write this book? Was this a while ago or? Um, It's been, the the first time I wrote this book was, it spanned between the late 80s and early 2000s. And 2009, I revamped it and worked on it a little here and a little there. And whenever my cousin passed, my other cousin, her sister, insisted that we move forward with it. And so I really got, buckled down and, and got it out last April. Okay. What does that mean, the tattered veil? Um, well, she has, she feels like, I guess, the underlying message there under the title would be that, you know, marriage is not always easy. It's it's dirty and it's, you know, hard and tattered. And, you know, if you're the bride, you got to be strong.
0: So even after all of this abuse that she endures, her marriage is less than perfect.
3: Yeah. How are you uh,
0: telling people about it?
3: A lot of social media, word of mouth. Um, I have Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and LinkedIn. And I have a website where I have a few stories, you know, just regular everyday short stories posted. This, This book is not the one that I want to be my breakout book. This one, I just needed to get out there and get off my chest, get it done for my for the sake of getting my feet wet, basically.
0: So how are you feeling now?
3: Empowered, because this was a hard book, a hard book to write because of the topic. And I don't like to constrain myself to one genre. So I have a couple of rom-coms. I have a thriller. I have a mystery, all kinds of different um, genres that I've got started and in the works i've got one thriller at the moment that's um i'm focusing on with a book coach so
0: well thanks so much for taking the time to talk yes, to me yes ma'am you thank have, you you have a great day and keep up the good okay. work thank you you so should much, write a book too. about what you do every day what these insurance companies do to you
3: um i i have a book in the works it's good. about the tumultuous relationship between an office a surgeon's office and a hospital good Good. Yes, so. right. <laughs> I'm looking
0: forward to that one, Becca. Yes. All right. You have a great All right. day. Thank
3: you so much. You bye too, bye. Alice. Bye-bye.
0: Brad A. Lamar is a man of many ideas. And while he keeps assignments interesting for his seventh and eighth grade science students, he finds his mind is always on the next book. This one he started in 2003. It is entitled Angler Island, The Crystal Cavern, a follow up to his first book, Angler Island.
4: I really didn't think of myself as that great of a writer, to be honest about it until uh, my senior year I get this letter from the Washington Post that says they wanted me to come to an internship what yeah and I'm like what is this coming from so my I think my English teacher my senior year submitted some work of mine and they got a hold of me but I didn't go because I was uh, just about to go to college and I had a uh, I had academic scholarships but I also had a baseball scholarship oh so I was playing baseball and I couldn't go do that. So I don't know what would have been.
0: The Washington Post or baseball? Hmm. Yeah. You know, when you're 18. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Baseball sounds a whole lot better.
0: It sounded real good. So then you become a teacher. What made you decide to write a book?
4: Um, I gave an assignment. Um, So the kids had, I taught, okay, back in I taught astronomy first, nine weeks, then human biology, second nine weeks. So I gave them a project on astronomy about making a planet. Then for a connection piece in astronomy, I'm sorry, in human biology, I had them create an alien that lived like the dominant life form that lived on that planet. And so I wanted to know what was a day in the life of an alien <laughs> on their planet. And so I wrote one. I wrote a story and I read it to the kids just as a, an example. And the kids were like, is that a published book? I'm like, no, I just wrote it for you. And they kept, every class said that, like for years, like a couple years in a row. And so I thought maybe I Maybe I should try. And so I sent it out to some agents. And uh, you don't get too many replies back then. This is when a snail mail. And uh, one agent did reply, I really like the way you write. But to be honest, if you're going to get published in today's world, in children's book, you either need to already be published or be a celebrity. Hmm. And so she said, if you really want to get published, write a novel. And so I did. I wrote uh, the first Angler Island. And I got an agent for that, but it didn't kind of go anywhere, but I was still writing in the meantime. And I wrote uh, my first Celtic Mythos book, and that caught the attention of a publisher in uh, North Carolina. And so story there is I got four books from that, because she was like, is this a series? And I said, do you want it to be a series? And she said, yeah. I said, yep, it's a series. And so I made it a series. But then that one story uh, about the alien—it actually got published last year too, or this year, I should say.
0: What made you go with Page?
4: Um, I just wanted something a little bit different. I wanted to try something different. I already had done um, the traditional publishing. They keep a larger percentage of the royalties, so I wanted to try see what it was like to do with, with a different type of company. But I keep all my rights, so I have all the rights to printing, screenplays, and whatever else.
0: So, your experience with Page, how, how did that go for you? Good. I thought
4: everybody is real friendly. I like the portal uh, that's there, so it just kind of keeps me on the timeline of what needs to happen. We got the process down.
0: Great. All right, so what's Angler Island about?
4: I've kind of come up with random ideas all the time, I have for years. Um, I just came up with an idea that what if there was a a company that tries to move every, all their employees to an island, and this island has tons of resources and It's like this beautiful place, but then there's this crazy phenomenon that traps everyone there. And so it's what I chose was the idea of a sea tornado that had this crazy power, and so it would sink ships, and there's no escape from the island, even though there's there's a, a subplot of obviously someone's running the island and keeping people there. Why? Because they brought in all these employees who are genius scientists and inventors, and creatives and so they're they're basically turning a profit from these people without them knowing it Oh, so that's kind of the backstory in it where the main characters are kind of coming of age it's a coming of age story it's just a lot of stories are so but yeah so it's uh kind of fun there's a lot of science in there because i keep science a lot of inventions a lot of uh, i i kind of thought up the idea of a tablet like a touchscreen tablet in that time <laughs> so this was back in like 2003 okay. before they, they came out but they came out so i can't take credit for it so i had to change what that was like when i went back and redid it and so yeah this is kind of this one of these ideas i like i have conversations with my publisher now I, i'll say okay i gotta pitch you an idea and so don't think any worse than me because <laughs> i just come up with these strange things and um the main character is a kid named evan and he's actually named after my son and uh so the first one he's kind of discovering so the first book he th- kind of discovers a plot that he thinks someone in, in there is trying to kill his father who's a scientist there's some twists and turns so it's a little bit of mystery definitely an adventure in the series And so we get to book two uh evan has already kind of met a girl there named taylor and um it just so happened that a friend had came with him and uh, you know so they got a little friend group and and that sort of thing well someone new comes to the Island who's about the same age and kind of disrupts the boyfriend, girlfriend aspect of Evan and Taylor's relationship. Uh-oh. And oh. So, and so, yeah. So Taylor, who's the girlfriend starts to question, what is Evan really right for her? And all the things like, you know, you would go through as a teenager. Right. Yeah. And so, but there's of course more nefarious, uh, dealings with it. He's, um, is he who is this new kid, Ryan? Is he who he says he is as he comes into the island? And so um, we eventually get to a point where um, we find out the the energy source, and this is pretty early on in the book, so I'm not really spoiling anything. Are these mysterious <clears throat> crystals from this cave that they don't know the true science of just yet, but they're trying to figure that out, and so that becomes an important an important piece. I, I don't want to give away too too much, you know. Um, so one of the things I would like to stress in it is the, the the science fiction aspect of it that there's a lot of gadgetry and like medical enhancements. I'm i will gonna say like performance enhancing drugs, but like f- things that were they're a little bit different than what you would see as in reality. As that's pretty harmful to people, but these are like totally different discoveries and I, like they're finding out different ways to grow crops and. and certain conditions and grow them faster and bigger and better. And, and, you know, just, it's all, it covers a wide gambit of, of science stuff. So, um, it just, it's an important part of it is that the whole reason they're there is because they're a scientific community. The reason they're trapped is because someone is trapping them and it all comes back down to greed.
0: Oh, what a surprise. So it's it's trying to get something out of these people for nothing and basically enslaving them.
4: Correct. They don't know it. But that's what's happened to them. Wow. And I got to tell you, I was going to write, uh, I was on the verge of writing book three for it. And I was going to have something similar to a virus coming out. But that all changed <laughs> with COVID. Right. I said, nope. Not writing that book.
0: So it's the Angler series is two books. Yes. Okay. So I'm assuming you have a following?
4: Yeah. I do some book signings. Um, did one here not too long ago, but all social media and, and people follow that way. So, but getting it out there through LinkedIn, um, I've got a pretty good YouTube following at this oh, okay. point. So, I'll advertise, you know, put things out there on there. But, you know, I don't just do that, I also show some of my own self, like uh, experiments in class with my students. Because they love being on YouTube. They sign off at the beginning of the year that their students uh, allowed to be photographed or posted in video.
0: That's great. Okay.
4: And then I also delete disabled comments. No one can comment on
0: them. Either. Oh, good. Okay.
4: I don't need any weirdos out there.
0: Right. Right. So it's uh, you're just kind of cruising along here then, Brad? Yeah, so far. All right. Brad, listen, thank you so much. first.